welcome back to UVA Data Points. I'm your host, Monica Manning. In today's episode, we're bringing you a conversation with Don Brown, a professor of data science and engineering and the founding director of the UVA School of Data Science, speaking with Bill Basner, a researcher and professor of data science at UVA. This conversation primarily focuses on remote sensing, specifically the use of LiDAR and hyperspectral imaging. Bill and Don discuss the diverse applications of this technology, including how it's used to detect landmines, how it can aid in search and rescue operations, and how it's currently being implemented to help preserve the Chesapeake Bay region. At times, this conversation can be highly technical, but Bill and Don do a wonderful job of placing this technology into a larger context and demonstrating how it can impact and benefit everyone. They touch on environmental science, urban planning, ethics and privacy, computer vision, machine learning, probability models, and much more. It's a fascinating and lively conversation between two skilled researchers. And so with that, here's Don Brown and Bill Basner. Okay. Hello, everyone. I'm Don Brown. I'm the Senior Associate Dean for Research in the School of Data Science, also a faculty member in the School of Engineering and Applied Science. And I'm here with Bill Baisner. And Bill, uh, can you introduce yourself and tell us a little about your background and how you got into data science? Sure. I'm uh, Bill Baisner. I'm professor of data science in the School of Data Science. And a lot of my uh, early work in academia was in math. So my first professorship appointment was uh, as a mathematician in the Department of Mathematics. And I transitioned into data science working with data from a bunch of remote sensing applications that we're going to talk about supporting the U.S. government. Great. Well, let's go right there then. Uh, you said remote sensing. Can you uh, can you help us understand what remote sensing is? Yeah. So remote sensing is taking measurements about an object without making contact with the object. So if we have a satellite up in space collecting data about the Earth, that's an example of remote sensing. Or a instrument on a car for us to guide a self-driving car that's examining the world around it. That's another example of remote sensing. Okay. And uh, what kind of remote sensing uh, work do you do? Do you look at uh, things that are coming from cars or do you look at things that are, uh, that the data is uh, derived from sensors in space or uh, somewhere in between? Most of what I do is from sensors that are on board either satellites or aircraft or unmanned aerial, aerial vehicles. Right. And tell us a little bit about the history of this remote sensing area for, I guess, uh, the vehicle one, the vehicular one is interesting, but there's, we think of remote sensing a lot of times uh, with regard to satellites and aircraft. And tell us a little bit about the history of that. What, how did it evolve and how did it become something that was important? Sure. Um, an early example of remote sensing was the U.S. Corona satellite project. So early on, Uh, Government satellites for looking for nuclear weapons in other countries, things like that. Um, The Corona Project was one of the early systems. And so they would actually collect imagery on reels and drop those film reels and catch them with an aircraft and fly them to one of the buildings I used to work with at the university up in RIT in Rochester. Um, And then they'd develop them. We worked with red, green, blue film and eventually... People realized if you put a, an extra layer on the film, you could look for infrared light as well. And so things that are painted green that are supposed to camouflage in with plants look very different in the infrared. So you could distinguish between those camouflage vehicles and actual plants by having that infrared as another layer on your film. So this was uh, obviously a military application. Uh, were there other applications that, uh, that people were using remote sensing for? So this early 
application was a military application today, and this is the, the story of remote sensing. It often gets developed in these military applications when there's a high need looking for nuclear missiles in Cuba, that kind of a thing back around the Cuban Missile Crisis days, to commercial applications once they're developed, once the technology reduces in price, the sensors reduce in size, um, it often transition to the commercial application. And that's kind of the story of how I've worked with things, often starting on the government side and then helping transition those things to commercial applications. Right. And I guess that uh, it's certainly been done by satellites, but I think before that it was done just by aircraft. Is that right? There was definitely some aboard aircraft, yeah. Yep. Yeah. And uh, in the aircraft, um, you know, obviously we're still using aircraft to, to do it, um, but we're now starting to use drones. Is that, uh, is that an area that you've been looking at as well? Yep. We have a, uh, a drone. So we being the, our lab, my lab at University of Virginia, looking at uh, two types of sensors on, that are on board our, our drone. It's a LIDAR sensor and a hyperspectral sensor. And so we collect data with that regularly over at Morven Farms, just south of Charlottesville. Yeah. And so flying a drone, I mean, that, uh, that has all sorts of issues uh, for people when they hear about you flying drones and flying over to, uh, to do remote sensing. So tell us a little bit about the concerns that, uh, and how you allay those concerns. Yeah. So each of the different collection modalities, meaning spacecraft, aircraft, or drones, has a trade-off in what you can collect, how broad of an area you can collect, the resolution of the imagery. And so drones are the highest resolution out of those, but you're restricted where you can collect, right? You can only fly for us and, and generally you can only fly over places where it's approved, right? So not near airports for us flying the scientific experiments only over the areas that we've approved to fly over for that day. If you're talking about privacy concerns, right? That's often one of the things people ask with remote sensing techniques. And you're like, oh, you can investigate things that normally people can't, right? So one of the early... Um, situations that was elevated to the Supreme Court was Kyler versus the U.S. And the um, law enforcement used an infrared video camera to look at somebody's attic in their house. And they discovered that the person had a grow lab in their attic from the excessive heat from the grow lights. Supreme Court threw that case out on the grounds that that data um, would have required a, a warrant to collect that data because it <clears throat> collected not only the um, information about whether there's a grow lab there, but it could have collected other data. So there's these these rules for information collection that um, that are really important to both respect, but also respect people's personal privacy in addition to the rules. Yeah, that's, that's important, obviously. Now, when you collect these data, do you make them available to uh, the public? Are they are they then put on, uh, you know, some sort of open source uh, repository or put in an open source repository that people can access? And is that typically done by others, I guess? So uh, two questions there. You know, your data and others' data. Yeah, it's becoming very common to share the data. So everything we collect on the days, the days that the drone works, because there are some days it doesn't for all sorts of reasons, um, we share that publicly through our, through, uh, through our web portal. Mm -hmm. There's the open, I think it's called the Open Topography Lab, where people can collect LIDAR and or hyperspectral imagery. Hyperspectral is done through the NASA data portal, LIDAR through the Open Topography. I think we'll probably talk about what those modalities yeah. or what those systems mean. But there's places where, where those the data is accessible in general. 
Yeah, that's great. I know that from uh, from my own work, we did some early work looking at uh, the barrier islands off of the coast of North Carolina and, and Virginia, but primarily North Carolina, because the concern was the environmental, um, you know, changes that were happening there. And now, because that data, those data are open source, uh, you can actually see the effects of climate change as you watch uh, the barrier islands. And this, by the way, was done uh, by a NASA uh, U-2, the, hmm. the same plane that you mentioned earlier with regard to the Cuban Missile Crisis. The U-2, of course, is the one that took the pictures. But the NASA has U-2s, and they use them uh, to take uh, to, for remote sensing and for exactly this kind of analysis, hyperspectral analysis of, uh, of regions of the country, particularly areas that are threatened now from climate change. So I think it's important that uh, I'm glad to hear that you're making your data available and that others are because it's important for us to be able to track yeah. uh, what's happening. Yeah. Um, let's see. Uh, so tell us, you, you mentioned several times that you're, you've got these multiple sensors. You've got uh, hyperspectral and LIDAR. So why don't you tell us a little bit about what the hyperspectral means? What is that? What is a hyperspectral sensor? So a <clears throat> standard image that we take with our camera, a digital image, has three values in it, red, green, and blue, right? So we can get the color we see. In our eyes, we have separate red, green, and blue cones. On a computer screen, you put in your red, green, blue values, your RGB values to get color, right? Hyperspectral sensor has 200 or so or more different mm -hmm. um, wavelengths that it collects, right? Red light, what we call visually called red light, that is around 650 nanometers in wavelength. Green is 550, blue is about 450. So the, our sensors go out to 2,500 uh, nanometer. So we get it further out in the infrared. And when you have a spectrum, so you collect hundreds of wavelengths of light. When you have that information, you get information, not just the visual color of an object, but about the chemical bonds that are present. So if you've watched true crime TV shows and they find a red thread at the location of some crime and they go find some person and match that red thread to the specific threads that are in the person's jacket, that's an example of doing spectroscopy. They put the both in a lab, they shine light on it, they collect the spectra, and they say, yes, this red thread is the same chemical composition of the person's jacket, right? Um, so unless somebody bought the same exact model jacket from a store, you know, you, you have a good chance that that's the person that committed the crime. So we're doing the same thing. We're collecting spectroscopy data. So each pixel has a spectra. So you can determine the chemicals. It's really the chemical bonds and the vibrations in the chemical bonds that determine the values you measure in the hyperspectral image. And, and can you t say a little bit more about, uh, you know, the difficulties of collecting these data? Why is, it, uh, why is this a challenge? And what, what makes it uh, uh, particularly interesting for you for this work? The biggest challenge, which I love, is that there are hundreds of thousands of different chemicals in our physical world that we interact with, right? If you walk down the street, you'll see roofs of cars, roofs of buildings, tarps, people's heads, hats, clothes, asphalt, cement, brick, you know, there's a long list of all the different materials that you'll see. When you collect a hyperspectral image in each pixel, you get a measurement of the chemical spectra for all of the different materials that are in that pixel. So what you have to do is what we usually use regression or something that says, I have this pixel, I want the abundances of the chemicals that are present. The problem is if you have 100,000 different things that might be in there and you do a regression problem with 100,000 different regressor variables and you only have 200 bands or features, you have an ill-defined problem. Mm -hmm. So this is where a lot of the Bayesian methods and the research come in to be able to handle that type of difficult problem. So it's a 
overabundance of information, right? You're getting every chemical that's on the ground in the area that you've imaged, right? So you can get a sensor that takes one image that covers Charlottesville, but how do you get all that information out of that image? Yeah, so say a little bit more about how you get this information out of the image. You, you mentioned Bayesian methods and some things. So what is it, can you give us a little more perspective on what you do in order to get that information? Yeah, so you have to, the first thing you have to do is define what problem you wanna work on, mm -hmm. right? So if you have a specific material you're looking for, so for example, um, <clears throat> One of the projects I worked with was looking for IEDs in Afghanistan and other countries, right? So, in, and it's a demining oper operations that are important to Ukraine right now. So, this type of application, you've got an explosive object that's dangerous, and that's what you want to find. So, you collect your image, and you want to say, where is that object? You don't care about the other 90,000 chemicals that are present. So, for that type of method, typically you'll use what's called a target detection algorithm or a match filter as your first process on the image to find the pixels that have some similarity to the target you're looking for. And so that's similar to what we use when our phone gets a GPS signal. The GPS signal is much lower in amplitude than the background noise coming off the satellites. But because you know what that signal is, you can find it in that out of that background noise. And that's really a signal processing algorithm. So first stage for that is target detection. Where are my pixels that correspond to what I'm looking for? After that, you do further more detailed analysis on those pixels that lit up in your target detection process. So that's if you're going after a specific target. Sometimes you want to take a hyperspectral image over like an open pit um, mining facility. Right? You want to know what, what are all the different minerals that are present in this area and where are they present and show me the layers because the structure of those determines from that you can infer the geothermal activities that went on that created the, the things that you care about. Right? So for that, we do often some sort of unmixing on every pixel in the image and you get abundance maps that correspond to the image that show you the abundance of each of the minerals you care about across that image. So what does unmixing mean? So unmixing means, um, so we'll talk about mixing first, okay. and then we'll do the unmixing yeah. part. So if you think about a, a pixel in an image as a square in the ground, mm -hmm. right, just put it out, picture that square out in your yard. There's probably some grass in that pixel, and there's probably some places, if your yard is like mine, we've got bare patches and you can see the soil. So the spectra you measure for that pixel will be maybe 50% grass and 50% soil. Sometimes in my yard, it's 20% grass and 80% soil, but you know, whichever. If you also put a red jacket out there in that pixel, the pixels tend to be big. So if this is like a, a one meter by one meter pixel and you put a red jacket in that pixel, your measured spectrum would be 0.3 times a red jacket plus 0.35 times grass plus 0.35 times soil, right? Those numbers add up to one given the different fractions of the area covered in that pixel by those different materials. So that's what mixing is. Unmixing is if you're given the pixel, how do you infer what are the materials that were present in there and the, the abundances for those materials? It's not very hard if you know, okay, I know these three materials are in this pixel, right? There's plenty of standard methods to say that, right? To It's linear regression will give you those coefficients. But when you say, here's a pixel, here's 100,000 candidates materials, which, maybe three or four of these are present, that becomes a much harder problem. And that's the part that I get excited about. That's where the Bayesian methods come in and 
sophisticated algorithms to make those decisions. Yeah, I imagine it must be even more difficult because out of, out of that 100,000, there may be another 20,000 of things that you haven't even considered, like the red jacket, for example. In your environment, you might not even have thrown that in as a possibility. So, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, one of the hardest things, and this always comes up in Bayesian <clears> methods, <throat> uh, that is how do you measure um, the probability that you don't know that something is in there that you don't know. And so I worked on with MITRE on that topic for our Bayesian model averaging. We patented a method for predicting, computing the probability using a Bayesian model averaging framework that it's not something we know, that it's something we don't know. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, okay, I can see how you do this for surface materials, but you mentioned IEDs and they're buried. So what, how do you get at that? <clears throat> so we can detect minerals with hyperspectral imaging. So I'm going to start with minerals because it's an area I can talk about without restriction, right? If you have an area and it's 98% clay and quartz and just stuff that's not very interesting, but 2% something that you care about. And I have a, a project I'm working out, working on looking for lithium mines. Lithium is really important right now. 2% of the mineral that contains lithium, 90% of other stuff, you can with the methods that we've developed, determine that, yes, that's that 2% of that thing that I care about is present. So you don't need, you can use work with very trace amounts of material. So you don't need like a physical object. You can have, you're I talking see. with grains and sand or, or powders or whatever. So anything that's left on the ground, even a small abundance, you could walk up to the place on the with your eyes and go, oh, there's nothing here. But we can still find in a hyperspectral sensor because we're looking at the bonds outside of visible wavelengths, even at small abundances. Yeah. So tell me a little bit more about the applications of this hyperspectral to other areas that you're working on now, because the stuff you did with the, for the military was in the past. And what are you, what are you working on now that's, uh, that's got you excited? So right now I'm working with uh, landscape architects, particularly Michael Lagaring <clears throat> in the landscape UVA uh, School of Architecture. And we're doing what's called engineering with nature, right? And so the idea is we want to do urban planning on a large scale, right? We want to plan the growth of Washington, D.C. and Baltimore and the surrounding areas around the Chesapeake Bay region, right? Similar to the, the islands you were, you were talking about. We have a project with Puerto Rico looking at how do we build, and, and the general question is, how do we build infrastructure that's going to work with the natural systems that are there and not against them? Not forcing, for example, a river to flow down a straight concrete canal, but building a space where the river can ebb and flow and erode its banks and move around and have a natural um, uh, path, which is both more appealing to the human interaction with the environment, right? The kind of social space we build, but also um, is less likely to cause serious erosion damage, is less likely to cause flooding, is less likely to cause a lot of the things that come about when you force natural systems to conform to straight lines. Yeah, well, this is great. That sounds like a wonderful uh, objective. Now, how, do, how does hyperspectral imagery? <laughs> That's a really good question. Yes. Yeah, so to do that, <clears throat> right, so there is currently no way to say what are all the natural systems in the Chesapeake Bay region. There's just no answer for that. If you look mm. at environmental scientists, they'll do experiments, but it's not really an engineering endeavor, right? It's an experiment to know how a plant will, will respond to a certain type of stimulus. Right. But the questions that come about when you want to do engineering with something are very different than the scientific experiments. So we're using the hyperspectral imagery 
to get the type of information you would want to do you want to do engineering on that scale which means we want to know all the different plant species we want to know all the different soil types and erosion patterns and be able to infer all of those systems that are going on and and so here's here's an example so beach grass grows on top of sand dunes so you can infer erosion patterns by looking at the locations of beach grass because you can see the sand dunes and if you monitor that over time you can uh, discover the changes in those erosion patterns. Now, my niche is taking the hyperspectral data and turning it into information. Like, where are the species? Where are the different soil types? Where does flooding occur? The landscape architecture people turn that into um, how do we make decisions about urban planning so that in 50 years, we're not fighting against erosion. We're working with the, the incorporating the natural systems with our urban planning. Yeah, it seems like, but correct me if I'm wrong on this, it seems like you could also uh, do the extended thing. You could you could not only look at what the natural system is doing, but you can look at how the human system has perturbed it. Is that right, or am I reading too much into this? No, that's definitely right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so, yeah, and that, it seems to me, would be absolutely critical to, uh, to understanding the engineering aspect of how you fix that. Yeah, yeah. So you're asking the question, thinking about like where have good things gone wrong and how do we right. fix them which is an important part of this the uh the i think our focus is how do we build them so they don't go wrong in the future but we need to fix the ones we have too i mean it's definitely an important component of it yeah yeah seems like it okay this has been great but let's move on to this other area that you mentioned earlier on which is lidar tell us what lidar is and uh how we collect data in lidar so a lidar <clears throat> sensor is a is a sensor that sends out a laser pulse, measures the time until it, it takes that laser pulse to hit whatever it's going to hit in return. And from that, it'll infer the distance to that object, which is, I don't know, the, the technology always amazes me that you can measure time at that fast of a scale, right? The speed of light going across a room or from an aircraft to the ground. Typically, you'll get information that's accurate to within a centimeter or a few centimeters. So this is quite different, well, I'd say different uh, uh, modality from uh, hyperspectral in that one seems active and the other seems passive. Is that uh, characterization that, uh, is, that is used here? Yes, yeah. So active means we're sending out some kind of signal, usually electromagnetic type of signal. If you're doing radar or a sonar signal, which is a sound underwater, those are both forms of, of active remote sensing. We send something out, it bounces off what we care about, and we collect information on how it reflects back. Passive means we don't send out a signal. We use the sunlight, light that's coming off the sun, or in thermal imagery, we might use the, the light that's in the coming off the uh, black body radiation from the objects we're looking at, which depends on their temperature. Um, so that's the, the passive. So hyperspectral is a passive form. LIDAR is an active form. Right. And I guess one of the uh, interesting differences here in the, between the two is uh, weather. If you uh, if you fly your your drone that you have on a very uh, misty, cloudy day, uh, it's a little bit more difficult to collect, isn't it? Versus the lidar. Yes, well, yes, certainly. The the um, hyperspectral will have trouble on a misty, cloudy day. Lidar will have some trouble because some of your laser pulses will bounce off of clouds or fog or whatever and come back, and you'll get error measurements or, or you know non physically realistic measurements. Um, if it, interestingly enough, there's there's imagery you can collect um, using radar. It's called synthetic aperture radar, which you can collect if there's clouds or smoke 
or at nighttime because it's an active form of uh, collecting imagery. Right. Yeah. That's always been an advantage, I think, to that uh, to that active form of uh, remote sensing. Uh, well, okay. So, what are some of the applications then that you've got for lidar? How, do you, how are you using that for your uh, for your research? Yeah, it's a good question. So, I gave the <clears throat> beginning discussion of lidar, which <clears throat> is very similar to if you bought a, a laser tape measure at the hardware store. You can buy these and use them to measure distances across a room. Um, but we don't want just one laser pulse in one distance. We'll put the LiDAR sensor on an aircraft or the drone. It swings back and forth or oscillates around or something, and it sweeps out and collects millions of laser pulses. And so what you get is a set of millions of XYZ coordinates for individual locations on the ground where that laser has, has hit an object. So if that, if that location on the ground is covered with vegetation, you'll get multiple hits at the height of that whatever that vegetation is. And from that, you can infer leaf density, you can infer three-dimensional structures. So for us in the Engineering with Nature projects, the LIDAR gives us three-dimensional information about the vegetation species or the ground, and the hyperspectral gives us uh, chemical information, the chemistry of what's there. And it's really the exciting, one of the exciting parts to me is how do we combine those different sources of information that are very complementary to, to each other, but both, both re very important. Yeah. So, um, do you use uh, LIDAR? I mean, it seems like uh, th there's another difference here in that you've got the pixels. You've got uh, the world pixelated for the hyperspectral, but now you've got these point uh, values for the, uh, for the LIDAR. So tell us a little bit about how that changes your, your analytics and your processing of this. Yeah, this is a really good question. So um, a lot of previous work that people have done, including myself in LIDAR, they take the, the LIDAR, they imagine taking a piece of graph paper and putting it over the ground and they bin the laser pulses that hit in each square and they turn it into images from that. And then you can do like the maximum height in each square, the minimum height, the standard deviation, the height, things like that will give you some information. Um, it's a more complicated question. How do we use not just that binned version, but the full three-dimensional structures? So I have a master's, uh, one of our MSDS capstones in our program is looking into how do we use convolutional neural networks. First, we're going to do the binned version, which is, it's not quite, I don't, doing that with the convolutional neural networks the way we were doing it isn't standard, but it's, but we're doing like one step up from standard. But then we're going to do the more advanced, which is a much larger research project of how would you handle this 3D information um, in its native, you know, set of XYZ coordinates. And are you doing this for specific applications as well? So, we have we have the LIDAR sensors for the Engineering with Nature program. In the online master's degree capstone, we're going to be working with LIDAR data that was collected over Haiti after the 2010 earthquake. And anybody who's interested can look up RIT 2010 Haiti earthquake LIDAR data, and it'll probably get a link to the open data portal. They have a really nice um, web-based viewer where you can go in and zoom around and pan around and see the damage from the, the earthquake in the different buildings in Haiti. So we collected, I don't know, it's a few terabytes of LIDAR data. We being, this was my former um, institution where I was math professor, where we collected a few terabytes of data um, over Haiti in LIDAR after the earthquake. And so we're going to be looking at that to determine, to see what we can determine to find different objects and then determine information about those. That's going to be the, um, the goal of that project. Now, when you work with LIDAR, do you work with that as like a separate, entirely separate source, obviously, from things like hyperspectral? Uh, but 
do you, is the analysis strictly then in, in LIDAR to get, for instance, the damage, or do you combine it with the hyperspectral as well? Yes to both. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> there are, so one of, we do, there, a lot of the work I do requires government uh, collaborations and corporate collaborations, and there's just a lot of partners involved to get all of these things done. So the company that makes the sensors we use is called Headwall, and I have a bunch of collaborations with Headwall uh, there. Some of their people, former students of mine, it's a good, it's a good relationship. Um, and they build the LiDAR sensor or integrate the LiDAR sensor that it's a Velodyne sensor with the headwall hyperspectral sensor on the aircraft that we use. And then their software combines the information too. So it creates the hyperspectral image, but then it adds a few bands, which are the information from the LiDAR, things like the mean height, the max height, the standard deviation. So you can work with them together in a single data source. The nice thing there is that they're co-located physically on the ground, mm. right? You have a, a measurement of a spectra from the leaf of a plant, and you have the LiDAR information for that same location. Right? You can work with them separate, but it's really nice having them together. In that yeah, way. and that was the question I was going to ask you, and let me let me ask it this way. Um, it seems like you need really good resolution to make sure that these things can be combined that way, so you know that this plant is the same plant in both images. So how's that accomplished? Yeah, it's very it's <clears throat> advantageous when you have the two of them collected together, and that's done with lots of software. Yeah, and and then make is lots of software and engineering, right? Because you have to know what's the angle that my hyperspectral sensor was looking, and then you set a target up. I mean, to do it well, you set a target up on the ground that you know is a square. And then you adjust all those. You, you take a first initial guess that the sensor has, but it's on a drone. It's not exact. It's based on the GPS, which when you collect your initial GPS, it's not accurate enough, but you can post-process to improve the accuracy of your GPS. So it's putting all those systems together to get that information. So it'd be more difficult to do then if, say, somebody else collected one of those. Let's say one, someone else collected the hyperspectral, you collected the LIDAR, and then you tried to put them together. And it would be even more difficult if there was separated in, in a lot of time, right? Yeah. Yeah, that becomes <clears throat> that becomes more difficult yeah. when there's separated time or even collected by different people over the same location. For the earthquake, Haiti earthquake data, we also have high-resolution visual image imagery. One of the things that happened after that earthquake, blue tarps were given out to people whose homes were damaged, and they made these makeshift blue tarp villages. And so one of our master's degree programs, our statistical learning class, uses the, the visual um, red, green, blue imagery from Haiti to locate those blue tarps, to build methods for locating those blue tarps. So one of the things I'd like to do is to have those locations of the blue tarps from the visual and combine those with the LIDAR that we're going to be working in the, with the master's degree capstones. One of, one of the paths that we might pick if the students are interested. Yeah, that sounds really, really cool. Okay, what other things can you tell us about taking LIDAR and information? How, how do you tell us more about how you actually do that for these problems? <clears throat> in, in what respect, like physically how we collect it? No, no, or, analytically how you do it. So in other words, what is it, you know, you, you explained to us in some great and, and, and uh, uh, efficient detail how you do it for hyperspectral. And you gave us a rough overview of how you're doing it for LIDAR, but tell us a bit more about how you took, take the LIDAR data and convert it into information. For instance, it can be used by your, uh, let's see, it was the 
engineering with nature projects. Yeah. yeah. Okay. <clears throat> yep. So, um, so currently the best way to deal with it is still to grid it and put it in the so dis discretize the x and y coordinates. Mm -hmm. So think about putting in a grid and you have all your z values for each square, and that's that is that's a very good that's a very good um, a very good way to work with it. One of the things I've done is taking an image over a city area and then labeling each of the pixels because at this point they're pixels, even though instead of having some color values in them, they have an unknown number of LiDAR pulse heights for that pixel, right? But you can still think of it as a pixel. Um, and you have to build your ground truth. And so the ground truth for, for, for the test that we worked on, so I'll explain how this works. We had uh, streetlights, cars, people, four or five different types of vegetation, four or five different types of buildings. Um, and then asphalt and um, unkept fields and then sports fields. So you can imagine different heights of grasses or textures on those. And so what we did is we, we labeled, actually my daughter did this, labeled lots of the data in the imagery. Um, and then we, so what you wind up with is maybe a, 100,000 pixels that you know what they are. For each pixel, you have... Really? 100,000 that were labeled? Yeah. yeah. Your so daughter is really a hard worker. <laughs> she is a very hard worker. <laughs> this is true. <laughs> or maybe I'm not such a nice dad. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, and for each of those, you have the max height, the min height, the standard deviation and the heights. The um, You can do like... You could do an expectation maximization and model that distribution with a couple of Gaussians vertically if you wanted to do something a little fancier. We didn't do that. And then for the neighboring pixels, we also incorporated sort of max height and min height around the area. So not only, you know, are we measuring the height of the thing we're looking at, but the height of the surrounding area around it. So like a street lamp would have a max height of maybe 30 meters and a min height of zero, right? Because it's tall and skinny and the area around it wouldn't have anything high. Edge of a building would have a max height maybe of 30 meters and a ground of zero, but it would look differently in the neighboring pixels. So you build that information up. And we used, uh, what we found that worked best was a random forest, which makes sense because it incorporates decision trees because street lights are a fixed height, right? You would get this relationship and you could set a threshold and say anything that behaves in a certain way that has a max height of over 60, sorry, 30 meters would be a street lamp. And so you can build it out and get the categories. Height of a person would be, you know, three feet to seven feet, right? Things that hit in that range that have the right area around them would be a person. And so random forest worked very well for, for that. So I can see where you can do this kind of thing. Uh, you could take your results and apply them to another place that has street lights and asphalt and so forth. But you can't apply it to, I'll just say, the problem I gave you earlier, the Barrier Islands, has none of that. And uh, so uh, it, do you have to go back to your daughter every time and get 100,000 uh, ground truth? Uh? So this is part of the engineering with nature part. We don't want to look at just one location right. and be able to repeat on that location. So one of the things we're doing is we're planning a number, we're coordinating with the USF, the FDA to get species and seeds that correspond to specific plants that we care about. Um, what is USFDA? FDA, Food and 
Drug oh, Administration. U.S. Food and Drug Administration. Yeah, and there might be another group that's okay. partnering with us. And so there's too many partnerships. Remember, okay. And I'm bad with acronyms, so I apologize. <laughs> <laughs> but we we collaborate with with both industry and government to make sure we know the 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 species we get and that they're pure, and then we plant them in different soil conditions, and then we kind of torture them by spraying salt water on them and measure their change throughout a whole year. So this is why we spend a lot of time down at Morven Farms, because we want a very controlled measurements, but out in the wild, of how these things respond to different conditions. Once we have those measurements, then we can go to the, the barrier reef islands and look at the conditions there and say, oh, this in May looks like a certain area over here. And we know in May, the, the species that are, that are there are in a certain stage of development growth through their annual cycle. And, and so we can compare them and understand what's going on. Okay. Well, um, why don't you tell us a little bit about the current and future challenges? Uh, you've told us some about the current ones, I guess, but tell us how those bleed into the future challenges that you're up against. Okay, I hate to admit it, but the one challenge that keeps me up at night is that in hyperspectral image, um, vegetation is dominated by chlorophyll. So the mm -hmm. spectra you get, right, you can tell very specific about, for example, polymers. You can tell a low-density polyethylene from a high-density polyethylene with near-absolute certainty, as, as a certain as if you were standing and looking at it and reading the tag on the, on the garment, right? And you can do that from an aircraft or from space. But vegetation, the primary source of what you're looking at and you get in your spectra is chlorophyll. So there's a high correlation between spectra from vegetation, even from different species. There's a little bit of variation, but I don't know if the variation of a fixed species throughout the year is, is different than the variation from another species. And this is what you see if you look at, I don't know if you've, if you, I like watching spring, watching the different things come out. In early spring, when things start to come out green, you'll get a lot of variation in the green of the things mm -hmm. because they come out at different rates and respond to the weather in different ways. Mid, late summer, everything is generally a lush looking green, right? Pine trees are a little different from oaks and elms and et cetera, but, but you get a more consistent green. So um, I'm not sure about doing that unmixing part when the spectra for the things you care about are highly correlated to each other. Yeah. I don't think anybody solved that problem yet. I don't know enough people, if enough people are aware of that problem. Because when you do a controlled test over one location and you take your ground truth from that location and feed them back in, you can do quite well with just about anything, right? But how do you do that robustly over time, changing seasons? That's a harder question. Yeah, that's great. And any other comments on uh, other applications you're thinking about, other future applications of this work? Um, the, the mining, like natural resource, is a very interesting one. Um, that's, that's interesting because there's both the chemistry of what you collect in the spectra, but the, like the geological processes. So lithium, for example, one of the things that, that's interesting right now because of the growth of electric vehicles that require lithium for the batteries, currently not enough lithium in the world that we have access to to build batteries for the electric vehicles that we plan to build and run, right? So lithium is often found in, um, in minerals that are formed by a, a geological process that goes something like the following, right? So when molten rock is hot underground, 
and it cools, you'll get large grains. So if you look at a lot of the granite and the rocks we see around in this area, you'll see like large black dots among white, right? And so that's, that's an igneous rock that was formed by cooling, slow cooling underground. Cooling of, of molten rock above ground gets much smaller grains, much, yeah, much smaller grains than those. Lithium is formed when there's molten rock that contains the right compounds to begin with, and it cools slowly, but it's held under pressure, which if you've seen like a, um, a bottle of some beverage that's left in the beer, it, sorry, a <laughs> bottle of some beverage that's left in the fridge and it cools below freezing temperature and somebody picks it up and then taps it and the whole thing freezes right away, right? Mm-hmm. Um, this same, same phenomena with these rocks. They're underground, they're under pressure. They don't solidify at the normal temperature. They're held at this, at the more molten temperature. And then once a star, crystal starts to form or something disturbs it, they, they um, transition, they go through that phase change to a solid uh, fairly quickly. And the lithium is pulled into the crystals at, at, that, at that time. So you're looking for these specific crystals and this specific activity type of thing, and you're trying to infer that. So that's a, that's a, one of the projects that I think is both really important to humanity and figuring out how we're going to run electric vehicles to, for their benefits. Um, but at the same time, find the lithium, we need to be able to do that. Yeah, that's great. Well, thank you very much, Bill. This has been wonderful to talk to you. Thank you very much, Don. It's been my pleasure. Mm-hmm.